Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm grateful to all of you for joining me today. Uh, we have a great program. The OSHA 3030, for those of you who have uh, not been attending uh, or if this is your first time, is a program that we do every 30 days, and we try and identify topics that are the most impactful in the field of OSHA law, and we do it about every 30 days, and we try and limit it to about 30 minutes. I don't know if we've ever been successful in, in staying under 30 minutes, but it's always fun to try, and uh, and I'm joined today. So I want to thank all of you for joining us. I also want to thank Javane Nakumaram today, who joins uh, us on the OSHA 3030 for the second time. Uh, Javane is an OSHA attorney and has had a number of years of experience working on some of the more significant OSHA rulemakings and other OSHA compliance questions that have come up. So, Javane, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Manish. So, <clears throat> for those of you who are interested and uh, have time, there are many topics that we've covered over the years at the OSHA 3030, and we've posted them all into a comprehensive library at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, and you can check those out. Some of them, so they, are, they are topics that are still informative and impactful on your uh, ability to bring your organization into compliance in OSHA law. So check them out. This is probably the 44th episode of the OSHA 3030, and so there should be about 44 or 43 uh, prior OSHA 3030s on, on our website. So what we're going to discuss today is uh, criminal liability as in, in the common law sense as it relates to uh, safety and health compliance. We, we did cover the Department of Justice Memorandum of Understanding in a prior OSHA 3030. You can check that out. We're only going to go over that really quickly right now. We're really here to talk about common law criminal law liability in the context of safety and health management. So first we're going to uh, discuss the OSH Act criminal violations provision uh, and then we're going to get into some of these recent criminal law prosecutions uh, and talk about the enforcement activity, the, the issues that were related to those criminal prosecutions. And then finally, as we always do, we will wrap up with uh, a practical discussion of what we think employers should do in light of these recent criminal prosecutions. Javane, sound like a good plan? Sounds like a good plan. Let's, right. let's get to it. Let's get going. The first thing I wanted to talk about, let's just start with the basics. The OSH Act itself has a criminal uh, provision in it. It hasn't been used a lot by most people's standards. Uh, in the, since the beginning of the OSH Act, when it was enacted uh, in 1970, there have been about 400,000 fatalities. Uh, and I believe that number has been mostly for the period of 40 years in decline. Uh, however, I'd say 47 years now almost, uh, however, uh, I think that there's been a slight uptick uh, in the past year, maybe two. Overall, though, the trend has been a, a constant trend of decline. So, so each year that has translated to about 4,500 workers uh, who are dying on the job, uh, yet less than 90 cases have popped up where the Occupational Safety and Health Administration has brought criminal cases, criminal prosecution. Uh, and the number has turned out to be somewhere around 10-ish 
every year. Uh, in 2010, there were 14 referrals for criminal prosecution from OSHA to the Department of Justice. Uh, in 2011, there were 10. In 2012, there were 12. But in 2013, there were only three referrals for criminal prosecution. Uh, and I think that that number has typified the last three or four years, although I don't know that the statistics are out. They are not out for the most recent years. But um, but generally, it, criminal cases are difficult to prosecute under the OSH Act, and uh, we haven't seen as many criminal referrals. And so uh, the OSH Act has been generally widely criticized for not being an adequate deterrent for criminal violations, and there haven't been as many cases prosecuted. So I note, uh, if you're listening carefully, Javane said that criminal prosecutions are very difficult under the OSH Act. However, uh, and the penalties aren't that great either, uh, however, it's important to note, and here's one of the reasons why uh, it's so difficult, uh, the OSH Act in order to make a criminal case under Section 17G, uh, a prosecutor has to establish that somebody knowingly made false statements uh, or somehow damaged or hid records uh, in the context of an OSH investigation. And even then, the imprisonment cap of six months and the penalty cap of $10,000 is not sufficient in most cases for OSHA, the administration, to believe that it has enough deterrent effect. There are other criminal provisions. Under Section 17E, an employer may be prosecuted criminally for willfully violating the standard, provided that that resulted in death. So there has to be a fatality. It can't be a hospitalization or even a uh, catastrophe in the old-fashioned uh, definition, which is you know, three or more people going to the hospital for treatment. Uh, even that would not suffice. For criminal prosecution under this section, there has to be a violation that caused a death, and it has to be willful. The willful part, I think, is what, Javanet, you're referring to as being difficult to establish by the, the administration. Absolutely. Uh, in order to uh, demonstrate that the violation was willful, you have to show that the employer actually knew of the violation or intentionally disregarded the standard or they had plain indifference. Uh, to the <clears throat> to the violation at hand, and then of course that that violation led to the death of the employee. So, with that said, there's very few things that the Act itself, the OSH Act, uh, allows for criminal prosecution of, and the caps uh, for penalties and imprisonment are very limited. Um, because of that, last year the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And entered into a memorandum of understanding with the Department of Justice, uh, and that allows OSHA to make referrals for other issues, including safety and health uh, violations and a larger list of federal crimes relating to, in general, I'll describe the umbrella as obstruction of justice or obstruction of an investigation. Uh, so with that said, the issue that I think is interesting to talk about today, Javane, is beyond the DOJ, beyond the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, what are other criminal prosecutions that an employer could be liable for in the context of safety and health management? Uh, so let me take you to start with to a case involving the U.S. bringing criminal prosecution against DNRB, which was doing business as fast-track erectors. This was a case, if I recollect, in this area of Kansas City, Missouri, 
where a construction firm was erecting the steel frame for a warehouse that was to be used as a distribution center. And they had workers going up, sometimes in scissor lifts, in the man baskets in scissor lifts, and they would, the workers would climb over the guardrail of the basket and onto steel beams that they were working on. These steel beams might have been about nine inches wide, and they might have been about 30, 36 feet high. These employees were walking, sort of in the style of walking a tightrope, so it was nine inches wide. They were walking along the steel beam, sometimes for 15 feet along the beam, without any fall protection, without any fall rest system, any netting underneath. And a crane would come and load onto the beam uh, material, which might have been 15 inches wide and 26 feet long. So the weight of these uh, material, construction material that were being loaded was considerable. And the worker standing, balancing without any protection on this nine-inch wide steel beam, 36 feet up over a concrete uh, deck, would guide the material as it was being lowered onto the girders, onto the steel beam, so that it landed uh, accurately. So they've been inspected. Interestingly, Chavanagh, I don't know if you knew this, but in 2002, OSHA had conducted an inspection, noted all of this, and issued citations. Uh, that was a totally different inspection. The folks at OSHA come around again uh, when, in 2015, if I recollect, a worker fell to his death. Uh, he was actually rushed to the hospital and died there that night. Uh, it was a 36-feet footfall onto the concrete deck. And uh, when OSHA came and investigated, so did uh, criminal prosecutors. And they concluded that the supervisor was well aware of the absence of fall protection, that workers didn't have harnesses, that they were, that the supervisor was well aware that they were using uh, scissor lifts and climbing over the guardrail onto the beam without any fall protection, that they weren't transferring their latch points, they didn't have any latch points, uh, that employees had asked for this kind of protection. And all of this was information that the employer was aware of, the supervisor there was aware of, and that he himself was not wearing fall protection whenever he would go up there, which indeed he did uh, go up on the steel beams, and he himself never wore fall protection. So well, I don't know which one's worse, Stephanie, if he was up there and the evidence showed that he always made sure he had fall protection, right. or if he himself didn't. Uh, so they brought criminal prosecution, and the evidence they were seeking was evidence that the supervisory personnel there on site knew of the requirements, knew that the employees didn't have fall protection, and sent them up there anyways without any uh, regard for the danger to the workers' lives. They were able to make their case. Uh, I, I think they presented their case, I should say. Uh, there hasn't been sentencing, but there's been a, a criminal conviction, if I recollect. Yep, and so they face the uh, maximum criminal fine of uh, half a million dollars for this violation. So sentencing, while it hasn't been laid down yet, um, it will likely be later this year. And I think the important fact for the purpose of safety and health compliance here uh, that I wanted to focus on for this program is, Jovene, the not only did this start with an OSHA investigation and, and the self-reporting requirement right. uh, under 1904, but also... Uh, 
that the evidence that the criminal prosecutors needed was supervisory involvement in two forms at least. One, that the supervisor knew what the requirements were, uh, but I don't think that's criminal, critical to the criminal portion. And two, that they knew that the employees were being exposed to this danger. Uh, that evidence was there. The federal prosecutors were able to get that evidence together. Uh, I think there's a couple more cases that are at least similar in terms of the elements that the criminal prosecutors sought to put together. Before we move on, I'll just point out in the photograph the markings. What you're looking at is the actual photograph of the site from which the employee fell. I believe he fell from where it's marked with a yellow circle, and he fell to the spot marked by the red circle, uh, and that that distance is about 36 feet in height. Uh, and this is the style of crane that was used to load material onto the steel beam. So you can see how thin the steel beam is that workers were, were walking along in the style of a tightrope without any protection. And they were doing this all day, every day, for a long, long time before something went wrong and an employee finally fell. It's important to recognize that it's not just federal prosecutions that, like the one we just described with Fast Track, that employers need to worry about in the context of uh, alleged safety and health violations. Uh, the states uh, have always been the first line, states and municipalities as well, have always been the first line for enforcement of common law criminal law. Uh, so, and OSHA's the Occupational Safety and Health Act has no preemption provision for criminal prosecution because it does not itself purport to uh, enter the field of criminal prosecution at the state or criminal level for most of these uh, common law crimes, manslaughter being a good example of one, uh, reckless endangerment, criminally negligent homicide is in many cases, in many states, a synonym for manslaughter. Uh, it may also be referred to as homicide without malice aforethought. So these things are creatures of state law and local law, and so they will sometimes change vocabulary. Other states will have two different crimes, one for manslaughter, one for criminally negligent homicide, and they will have slightly different prima facie elements or levels of intent that the prosecutors need to show. Uh, and so this this is very much something that varies from state to state. The overall concept, to me, seems nevertheless important in every jurisdiction that you're in. We're still talking about something like the traditional common law concept of manslaughter. So let's talk about another case, Commonwealth versus Atlantic Drain Services. I believe this took place in the Boston area. It was in Massachusetts. And Commonwealth uh, refers to the state prosecutors, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, a little trivia question for you guys. I'm not going to answer it for you. You've got to look this up, those of you with Alexa sitting nearby. Uh, there are three states that go by the name Commonwealth, Massachusetts being one of them, my home state being another. So the Commonwealth of Massachusetts brought a claim against Atlantic Drain Services. Atlantic Drain Services was installing piping, uh, subterranean piping, and so they dug a trench. This trench was 12 feet deep, and... They had two workers in the trench, and the trench collapsed. And this was 12 feet deep. They were under 6 feet tall, and they were buried immediately by the trench collapse up to their waists. They started to struggle to free themselves, and other workers were 
preparing to assist in freeing these two workers when they noticed that at the same time the trench collapsed burying the workers, it also knocked a subterranean feed line that supplied a fire hydrant. And the pipe broke loose and immediately started gushing massive amounts of water into the trench. In a matter of seconds, while the workers who were buried struggled uh, to free themselves, and many workers tried to rescue them uh, and frantically tried to free them from uh, being buried by the dirt, they were, in a matter of seconds, submerged underwater. Uh, the water from the pipe was coming out that fast. And uh, they both perished in that incident. Uh, OSHA came in and investigated immediately, and uh, the Commonwealth sent its, its prosecutors, uh, an investigative team, I'm sorry, law enforcement, to investigate as well. And uh, OSHA issued a number of citations, adding up to over $1.4 million in proposed penalties. But perhaps, certainly for the purpose of our OSHA 3030 today, but perhaps in the longer run, much more important, uh, the state brought criminal a criminal case of manslaughter, two counts of manslaughter. Uh, after that, the owner, if I recollect, there was somebody in management, I think it was the owner. Uh, yeah, it was the owner? Yep, the owner. Uh, he's also being charged in this case. So so tell us about that, Javanay. Well, so in this case, uh, there it wasn't just the company that's being uh, held liable here, but the owner is at issue here because of certain activities that occurred after OSHA investigators came in. Yeah, specifically. Specifically from the owner. So allegedly uh, there were false state. he made false statements to the investigators and falsified records and also uh, failed to give injury and illness records to OSHA upon request. So um, this is a good example of not only can a company be charged criminally, but also individuals uh, within the company uh, based on their actions. Yeah, he, he manufactured training records, uh, if I recollect, uh, for those two employees and uh, submitted them to OSHA. And the allegation is that he submitted those to OSHA, but then when the criminal prosecutors came around and asked for the records, he said he didn't have any such records. And that was uh, a very poor choice. But, but for the purpose of the manslaughter charge, they were able to show that the uh, company was well aware of trenching requirements and they didn't do anything to shore the trench. They didn't create uh, a trench box for the workers to work in. Uh, and they sent them in knowing that, that there was no protection against the trench collapse. Um, so they brought two cases for manslaughter as well. That case is still active. And I think that there's really good evidence uh, on behalf of the Commonwealth showing the employer's knowledge, both of its requirements for trenching, as well as uh, its indifference about taking any action. So although the case is still active, I will say that it appears that, that they have quality uh, in terms of the evidence behind their case. And you'll typically find that when criminal prosecutors bring cases like this, they do so after an extensive effort to gather the best evidence they can. It's not like the plaintiff's bar in the sense that you'll sometimes see uh, somebody raise a complaint and then look for evidence later. Uh, so, so this was uh, a fairly persuasive case on the two prima facie elements that we're talking about today, which is knowledge of the requirements, reckless indifference 
to the uh, danger that's presented to workers with regards to taking action towards complying with those requirements. And I, I will note that the owner faces up to almost 20 years in prison for right. these violations. So because he was prosecuted under these state laws versus uh, you know federal OSHA penalties, the prison sentence is significantly higher. That's right. That's a good point, Javanay. Thank you. And the next case I wanted to talk about was People versus Harco Construction. This case was brought to my attention when I was at the uh, American Bar Association Midwinters Conference for OSHA law, and one of the panels that presented before my presentation, my panel, involved uh, criminal prosecution, and the speaker was a uh, district attorney from the city of Manhattan presented this case that was in her jurisdiction. This is an excavation and another trench collapse and uh, an employee who was crushed and killed, and the state brought criminal charges of manslaughter as well as criminally negligent homicide and reckless endangerment. These are photos that the state supplied to the court uh, showing the trench collapse, showing the depth of the trench, uh, which, which is evidence towards the applicability of the OSHA uh, trenching requirements as well as uh, state code and city code. Uh, what they had alleged at, at the state level was that the employer knew what actions they were supposed to take to create proper safe uh, trench conditions and failed to take those. Uh, the best evidence that they came up with, in my opinion, of all the evidence they gathered, was that the employer had a safety consultant who had repeatedly warned them to uh, protect that trench against collapse, and they did not take any action. Maybe one of the most interesting things about this case, it has already been brought to trial. The judge entered uh, a verdict in it. The state asked for prison time and stiff penalties, and the judge said, in lieu of any incarceration, I am sentencing the company to distribute public service announcements in print and in television ads that go towards the importance of workplace safety. And if they comply with that, that would suffice in lieu of jail sentencing or uh, fines. Maybe the thing that is the most interesting about that fact was that not only did the judge walk away from the state's request to impose at least some jail time, but that having given them what I think is a fairly uh, lenient sentence, Chauvin? Oh, absolutely. That they appealed it and said, there's no way we're going to air any public service announcements. You can forget it. Uh, it's never going to happen. And so that, as I recollect, is still currently under appeal. They are appealing that sentence. Um, I hope that works out, but I would say that if you appeal and go back down to sentencing, I think that the opportunity to reevaluate that sentence is on the table again. I am not a maven of criminal sentencing guidelines at the state level for the state of New York, and I think that's putting it mildly. But do I, do I qualify my, my humility enough? Uh, but I would say this. I think that it's possible for the judge to revisit the uh, the, what I call equitable relief and maybe go back to the question of sentencing that might involve imprisonment. So this is a gamble. Uh, with that said, though, the, the conversation that I had with this uh, uh, New York State criminal prosecuting attorney was extremely interesting to me. And she, she had mentioned 
in her presentation, as well as when we had talked afterwards, that the evidence that she looks for, the sort of a golden triangle of evidence, is she tries to get any email evidence she can find because email is so voluminous that at some point some employee or a consultant or someone else might have said something that gives her the evidence she needs for knowledge or for indifference to that knowledge or indifference to the requirements. She interviews email. Uh, she interviews employees, and those employee interviews are elemental to building her case. And of course, she looks for physical evidence. The photographs that you see here are part of a body of physical evidence that uh, illustrates, in many cases, you know, in the sense of a picture being worth a thousand words, uh, illustrates many of the requirements that the employer needed to comply with. And so that is sort of the golden triangle of evidence that you can expect a criminal prosecutor to be seeking out. And that, by the way, I think is a good segue into our practical conversation about what employers should do. Because when you think about what employers should do, uh, practically, in light of these three very recent criminal develop, uh, prosecution cases, you, you can start with, well, what are the prima facie elements that criminal prosecutors look for? They're going to look at your employees, and they're going to talk to them and ask them, what kind of compliance methods were being practiced at the employer, at the work site, at the establishment. They're going to look at your email evidence about your compliance, about your knowledge, about your requirements, about any warnings or complaints, uh, and they're going to be taking photographic evidence, and so the physical site itself is Exhibit A. Uh, Javane, I think it's important to talk about the OSHA inspection first when you talk practically about what employers should do. Right, absolutely. So when uh, when there is a fatality at the workplace, obviously the first thing that you need to do is report this fatality to OSHA within eight hours and, of course, preserve all evidence surrounding the fatality and co fully cooperate with OSHA when they come in for the inspection because they will be asking for documentation, they will be interviewing employees, and, of course, when they come in to review an OSHAC violation, they will also be on the lookout for possible criminal violations or possible violations in which they need to refer to the Department of Justice. But in addition to looking for OSH Act criminal violations, potentially, they'll certainly be gathering evidence for their own allegations of a violation that can be useful to a state or local criminal prosecutor for common law crimes like manslaughter. So although they're not seeking out to gather evidence for state criminal prosecutors, the evidence that they're gathering is certainly a repository that state and criminal prosecutors know they can look for and that it will be there in the hands of the OSHA investigator. And so the, the bottom line, the practical impact of that is when you respond to questions, when you respond to requests for documents, uh, you are giving evidence that relates directly to your company's criminal liability or the liability of executives or management members at your organization. And it should not just be treated, particularly in cases involving fatalities, it should not just be treated as a civil investigation by a administ federal administrative agency. It has criminal implications in the sense that the information you're supplying would be evidentiary, of evidentiary value in a different criminal investigation. I think that's a huge point. Javane, we had a question come up uh, by a member of the OSHA 3030 community. They're asking, where's the line drawn between consultant confidentiality versus uh, the imminent danger uh, consideration to notify 
the employer, I suppose. That question wasn't clear on its face. I'm sort of reading into it. But I'll say there's two issues brought up by this question. One, the consultant's communication with the employer in a non-attorney consultant uh, context is not confidential in the sense that criminal investigators can't get a hold of it. Uh, it's subject to civil discovery and it's subject to criminal investigators getting their hands on it. There's no confidentiality that attaches to it. That is not necessarily the case if your consultant is an attorney who's gathering information for the purpose of rendering legal advice. So, so your attorney-client privilege still maintains where your outside um, counselor is a, an, an attorney, but if it's a non-attorney consultant, there's no confidentiality that attaches to it. The if the question is asking what about the consultant's duty relating to imminent danger, uh, well, I think the consultant has a duty to the employer to notify them immediately of dangerous circumstances. And in the case of uh, the Manhattan case, uh, the uh, trench collapse, I think that's what the consultant apparently did was notify the employer. If the question is, does the consultant now have a duty to notify anyone else, uh, I, yeah, I think that's a very good question. I would consider the more important elements to that question is whether or not the consultant has a legal duty and not just an ethical duty. If the consultant believes that the danger is truly imminent and does not take action, I think it's an open and very important question to ask as to whether or not there's criminal negligence there. But I think it's an easier question to talk about civil negligence if the, if the consultant didn't take all actions that he was empowered to take to prevent an imminently dangerous circumstance. Uh, and I think that that goes to two employers who are at arm's length as well. When one employer sees a co-located employer engaging in conduct or the employees engaging in conduct of imminent danger, I think you have a duty to stop it. That's an imperative that transcends moral and ethical imperatives, and I think it goes to that person's uh, duty when we're talking about negligence as well, both criminal and civil. Uh, and you could state it the reverse, that the transcendent uh, value is moral and ethical, and it doesn't matter to me. I think action needs to be taken. Uh, that, to me, is clear. Javanay? Uh, no, that makes sense. So, so that was the question. I think it's a good, good question you've raised. Uh, I think the other point that we need to uh, raise, remember under 1904, and we've covered this in different contexts in other OSHA 3030s, is that if there is a fatality, the employer has a duty to report that to OSHA within eight hours. Whether or not you report that to other local municipal building authorities, uh, you need to be aware of if you're involved in construction, if you're involved in other non-construction activities. Certainly OSHA or your state plan state, uh, OSHA agency or safety and health agency need to be notified within eight hours. Uh, I think it's also safe to say that there is the potential for civil and criminal liability, and so all evidence needs to be preserved faithfully and protected against not only being destroyed deliberately by somebody within your company, but be protected against inadvertent destruction. Some people have, some companies have automatic destruction after 90 days or 180 days, emails get deleted, for example, and that needs to be suspended in the instance of evidence that specifically relates to the fatality. Chavanet, you'd written here that you thought someone ought to, an employer ought to consider legal counsel at that point, and I think that that's really... Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, especially following a fatality, there's so much... Um, there's so much that OSHA is going to be asking. There's going to be potential not only, you know, civil liability but criminal liability. So it would be uh, prudent to get legal counsel as soon as possible to help advise you through the process. 
And as we talked about before, the defense that you raise or the evidence that you supply in the OSHA investigation is going to be Exhibit A. It's going to be the centerpiece in criminal investigations as well. One person wrote uh, uh, into the box on the left lower corner a question, can the OSHA inspector report potential EPA violations? The answer is yes. There's been a longstanding memorandum of understanding between the agencies. Right. So this goes back to the worker endangerment initiative that Monish referred to. That was uh, There was a memorandum of an understanding released from the DOJ in, in December of 2015, where uh, essentially DOJ and, DO, uh, and the Department of Labor, they're going to collaborate uh, in terms of prosecuting worker uh, safety violations. So when OSHA inspectors come in following a fatality and they see potential RICRA violations, TOSCA, Clean Air Act, other types of major environmental violations, they will certainly refer those cases to the DOJ for further investigation because those violations typically yield significantly higher penalties and uh, potential prison sentences. As clearly do the state and local criminal yep. enforcement. That's right. So, so when I consider these three very recent cases, fast track erectors, Atlantic Drain, Harco Construction, these criminal prosecutions uh, from common law criminal law, uh, I think that it's important that we leave with the following three points. Criminal prosecutors who wish to make a case, a criminal case, a criminal charge for manslaughter or some similar or analogous criminal law need to gather evidence in support of three elements, what we call prima facie elements, and they are essentially these, though they may be worded differently from state to state or locality to locality. The first thing that these criminal prosecutors are going to look for is evidence that the victim was killed as a direct result of the defendant's actions, some action that the employer took. And by action, we also mean inaction. Actions or omissions by the employer resulted in the death of the victim. The second thing that the prosecutors are going to build, try and build evidence in support of is that the employer's action or conduct or omission was inherently dangerous to people around them or that it was done with uh, reckless disregard for, for human life. And so, so what they're going to look for is evidence that the conduct, for example, walking along a steel beam, allowing people to transfer from a man basket to a steel beam 30 feet up, walking into a trench that's evidently and visibly not protected or short or no trench box installed, that, that these are things that are inherently dangerous to other people. Uh, and then finally, prosecutors are going to look for evidence that the defendant knew that their conduct uh, presented a threat. So, so the second one is that it's inherently dangerous conduct or that the conduct was engaged in with reckless disregard for others. But the, the third is that the defendant knew or should have known that the conduct was a threat to the lives of others. All of the evidence that they're going to gather goes towards those three elements. And the biggest of them is really this idea that the employer, the, the conduct was inherently dangerous and that the employer knew or should have known that their conduct was putting others' lives at risk. So with that said, you have to evaluate very quickly when you have a fatality on site you have to evaluate really quickly what your exposure to these kinds of prosecutions might be. And you have to identify quickly what your defenses are going to be, line up your defense team, uh, and begin your OSHA investigation preparation with this 
end point in mind that that the OSHA investigation and the criminal investigation may uh, intersect greatly in terms of the evidence being supplied to both. So that's it for this OSHA 3030. We did it in just a little over 30 minutes. The only request, we we do this every month. We've done this for over three years, three and a half years now. And the only request we ask of you is that when you get your email invitations for the next OSHA 3030, that you forward it to at least three colleagues within your organization and at organizations where you have colleagues or friends in your profession. This is, as you can tell, targeted to in-house counsel responsible for OSHA law as well as safety and health professionals. So please forward your invitation to three others. We will rebroadcast this program as a podcast, as with many of our other OSHA 3030s. We post other news on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, under Monish Rath and the Callum Heckman Workplace Safety and Health. And this slide deck will go up on our webpage with the rest of the library at khlaw.com slash 3030. The next OSHA 3030 is Wednesday, May 24th, 2017. If you are responsible for uh, Toxic Chemicals Substance uh, Control Act, uh, Toxic Substance Control Act, Tosca, you should make sure that you tune into Kellen Heckman's Tosca 3030. Uh, that's a great program, uh, and it's a very important issue develop, developing as we speak. And so, so that information can also be found on our website at khlaw.com. Uh, thank you all for participating. Javanay, thank you. No, thank you for having me. And until next month, stay safe.